0: Hello everyone, I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. Hey loyal listeners, I'll be hosting this episode myself. I've been involved in software development for more than 25 years. I've started companies, led companies, and worked for companies, doing many different things. I'm honored to be considered a leader in Alberta's innovation ecosystem, and I give back as much and as often as I can. When I'm not working or podcasting, you'll find me pursuing my passions of photography, crypto investing, and woodworking, along with the occasional round of golf. Join me now as I get educated in wealth management by my guest, Kenton Scholdice. Let's do this. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Leaders, Innovators and Big Ideas podcast for Rainforest Alberta. Today, my special guest is Kenton Scholdice. Hi, Kenton. Hello. Thanks for having me. Awesome! It's great to have you here. So I'm thinking, you know, I usually start out every episode because I want to learn a little bit more about my guest. And you know, some of the people at the Rainforest may have had a chance to chat with you, but I'm sure there's a bunch that don't know who you are. So maybe you could give us a bit about your background. You know, where what was it like being Kenton?
1: (laughs) I imagine a lot of people listening to this have not met me. I used to be more heavily involved with the Rainforest pre-pandemic, and then when things went online, you know, I kind of just hunkered down and did my job and was busy with that. And now I'm kind of getting back out there networking. So you and I had a chance to meet just briefly over that coffee collisions thing. So if any rainforest person's listening, fun little event. I think that was the first one, so that was nice. But anyways, a little bit about me, I guess, as a background. I came from the wealth management industry, and most people are gonna be unfamiliar with that. But as you might guess by the name, wealth management means managing money for wealthy individuals and when you're dealing with those types of clients it's not just investment management you're doing the financial planning and tax and estate work and it's all customized and integrated into like a very high class kind of offering so that's what i did for the first 8 years of my career but ultimately it's not the most fulfilling work to just help rich people get richer right so i kind of took the knowledge that i had gained over that time and i thought you know what let's Let's make this available to the people who actually need some help, right? So the idea was simple. Take the wealth management business, automate as much as you can, deliver it at low cost to middle class
0: people. And
1: that's what I've been doing for the last
0: six years. Brilliant. And you call your company Shouldice Wealth.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's an easy one just because my last name is Shouldice. I was told that. You know, the name would have a little recognition in, in Calgary. Born and raised Calgarian. I'm a fourth generation Calgarian, actually. And some of the people might know Shuldeis Park or Shuldeis Arena. There's there's some family history there where I think our family was one of the original 18 like families that founded Calgary. And they owned a big chunk of land. It was agricultural at the time. And they donated it to the city to be used for recreational purposes. So the name Shuldeis thought I was hoping, would kind of... Benefit from that
0: recognition, yeah. yeah. Hey, why not? That's <laughs> that's a you know a, a very well known park and and a facility in Calgary. That's very cool. That's very cool. As you mentioned, the rainforest. Uh, they so now they're in person. For those of you who don't know, rainforest has in person lunch without lunch events on the fourth Wednesday of every month, and uh, they started doing coffee and collisions in the morning. So if you get to Platform Calgary, which is where they currently hold it, somewhere around, I think it was, we started at nine, but I think they're saying it's going to be more like 10 or 1030. You get to sit around the the cafeteria or the kitchen area there and get to meet some really cool people. And I I really enjoyed it. You know, there was a lot of conversation and met some really cool people. And, you know, we just saw some people kind of sitting at their own table and we're like, hey, come over here and sit with us. And we ended up having some really good conversations. And uh, hey, that's where where we met. And it was really an an interesting experience. It was a very neat, casual networking experience rather than standing around a room full of people. It was a little bit more personal than that.
1: Yeah, definitely. It was just kind of an organic conversation, like grabbing a coffee with a friend, you know, getting to know people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So,
1: yeah. And that's how we got talking about this. And when you told me about the podcast, I was most interested in the fact that you have different hosts for each episode. Because I think that's a very kind of unique way to run things, and might be an excellent way to meet people,
0: right? A hundred percent, yeah. And uh, you know, for for yourself, you know, you had sort of suggested that you might be interested in being a guest and or a host. Well, I'm going to take advantage of that. <laughs> so you're hopefully you'll be hearing Kenton's voice as the host of a future episode. But but you know what? It's it's really great to meet people in the ecosystem and and those that are you know even if they were gone for a while and they come back and you know they're part of the Alberta ecosystem making things happen i do have to ask though on your linkedin page in the header of your linkedin page there's you holding a children's book with a bunch of little kids hands poking out can you can you talk to that
1: oh uh, yeah that's that's a fun one so essentially we've always focused on education for our marketing you know i'm not a salesy person back when i was at the wealth management firm I was not client facing. I was the guy in the background who does the work, right? And so I'm kind of getting used to the whole marketing thing. But the way that we do it is we just focus on education, right? If we can teach people about investments and finance, then we're more likely to get their business anyway because, well, our business is, in my view, superior, right? We're charging less for our services. We're offering a broader service. We don't have conflicts of interest like banks and brokers do. And so we don't need to go out there and be too self-promotional. We just explain concepts to people. Why do fees matter so much? Why do you need to diversify a portfolio? How do you structure things tax efficiently? Right? There's all these kinds of things. And then just naturally, some people won't have the time or the interest or the knowledge to do it themselves. And they'll ask for our help. And so it's a very organic matter. But to the point of the children's book, we were educating adults and we noticed a theme that was... well. A lot of people don't have good financial habits, right? And if you're an adult with poor financial habits, it's a lot more work. You kind of need to unlearn certain behaviors and then relearn the right ones. And so we thought, well, if we can get in front of young kids at an early age and impart good financial habits on them, then it's just much easier. So the concept of the book is pretty straightforward. It's geared towards kind of three to eight-year-olds. And we're just trying to get them to save for the future, right? The idea that you're going to put away something for later. And that's all we're trying to get. And the book is about some squirrels that have to save nuts for the winter. So that's how we get the concept across. And then we even try to get the idea of investing through by having one of the squirrels plant the nuts. And then the nut grows into a tree, which is really the concept of investing, right? Not just putting something away for the future, but having that thing be left for a long term. And grow into something more. So that's the concept of the book, and, and that picture is me going around to schools, and I would talk and read the book to kids. Now we'd give out free copies, right? So that's our marketing budget. Is we published, we wrote, published. I go and read this book. We would give it away for free. We've given away about three thousand copies already. I've got a thousand more in my basement. So if any reader wants to get their hands on some, just you know. Get my contact information. I don't know if we'll put it in the show notes or something like that. But yeah, we're giving away free copies. There's electronic versions online, and the goal is to educate.
0: I love this idea so much. You know, I've heard over and over again that that this important stuff, like financial wellness, is not taught in schools, right? And and so this is absolutely brilliant. You know, this is getting them when they're young, giving them the conceptual idea. So they don't have to worry about money and they don't have to worry about, you know, mutual funds and all these weird things. They just think of the concept of, of saving uh, and and planting and storing wealth for future. I love this idea. This is so great. I wish I could have had this when my kids were young.
1: <laughs> I, I do wish that it was taught in schools. I think ultimately that needs to be done, right? Because there's only so much I can teach a child in 20 minutes, right? Or, or So we really need to spend more time getting it into the curriculum, but it takes 10 years to get the curriculum changed with the Calgary Board of Education. I've actually tried to get some progress on that. and really made any headway. But it needs to be there because it needs to be a longer term thing. But at at the very least, if I can get this book in front of a child and just instill the habit of saving for the future, the other things can come, right? But if you've got somebody who doesn't even have the habit to put something away and is living paycheck to paycheck, there's very little I can do to help, right? And so it's just that core habit that's really important. The knowledge, we need to build more knowledge on that, absolutely. But the habit is learned early. And so I think it's just important to have something like this to, to help kids set them on the right path.
0: Awesome. That's really such a great idea. Maybe maybe taking a spin off of that, when it comes to you know adults now and and they've missed out on this book and they've missed out on the education of of saving and and growing their wealth. Maybe what would be sort of like one or two really simple things that a person could do to kind of improve their position say 5 or 10 years from now. You know, there's there's got to be something even if you're living more or less living paycheck to paycheck, there's got to be some little thing that you can do. Maybe you could give us a little bit of advice there.
1: Oh, sure, happy to. So Obviously, there's a lot of things. But at its core, it's not that difficult. It's kind of like health-related. Like When you get health advice, people tell you, Oh, well, eat well and and exercise regularly and get good sleep. We kind of know these things intuitively. But the real problem for proper financial management Mm -hmm. is that it's easier said than done. So I, I can tell you what to do, but it's kind of hard to sometimes do it. Nonetheless, I'll at least give you some advice. So first thing you want to do is you want to live below your means. That means you're going to be spending less than you're making. And that difference is savings and that money should be invested so that it can grow. When it comes to investing, the most important thing to focus on is actually reduce your fees. So there's a lot of different variables you can look at that would affect your performance. But the one variable most correlated with future returns is fees. It kind of makes sense too, because fees is money that comes out of your pocket. So it's clearly going to reduce your investment performance. There's lots of other factors, but focus on that first. And then if you're looking at fees, you should also think, well, if I'm paying somebody these fees, what incentive is it giving them? And so sometimes the fee is like a commission, right? You're getting paid up front. And in that case, the, the incentive is for the person to sell product, right? You're incentivizing a salesperson. Whereas if the fee is, for instance, based on I'm going to grow your investments over time, well, now you're incentivizing the right behavior, right? So looking at how much you're paying and what incentive or conflict of interest might that money create, that's important. But yeah, it's kind of the basics. It's also very much a Warren Buffett style of approach that works. So if you're looking for some good advice, I would say look to Warren Buffett. I think his approach is the most time-tested kind of long-term strategy for most people. Buy and hold, low cost, broadly diversified. Living below your means, It's just like health, right? <laughs> Eat well, exercise, get sleep. You know, it's all the basics. So, where I mentioned earlier that you kind of need to easier said than done. So, how do you do this effectively? Well, you really want to build a process that does it in a fairly automated fashion, because our behaviors tend to get in the way, right? As as human beings, we have certain biases, things like hurting. So when it comes to investing, we'll see something doing well, and we want to get in on it, right? And we've seen this play out over the last year, clearly with certain kind of bubbles or manias. And now we're seeing the the repercussions of that. You don't want to be kind of following the herd, but your behavioral bias is what's getting you to do it. It's hurting. There's things like overconfidence, thinking that you're smarter than everybody else can lead you to make some you know, crazy bets and take some risks that maybe you shouldn't take uh, because you're overconfident. So there's all these behavioral biases that kind of make it hard to execute these strategies. And that's where the process comes in, right? So for us, it means you want to build a diversified portfolio. So stocks, bonds, cash diversified by region and asset class. And then you want to have a process that, for instance, forces you to rebalance at a set frequency. So during a crash, let's look back at say 2008, stocks are falling in value, but you have a diversified portfolio and maybe you have some safer bonds. Well, now is an opportunity to sell some of those safer bonds and buy stocks. Your emotion is going to say, don't do it because you're, you're worried about the stock market, right? That's why it sold off so much Is there's a lot of reasons to worry. But the process that you want to build is one where have targets. Maybe it's 50% stock, 50% bonds. My stocks have gotten crushed, so I'm underweight. I need to buy stocks back to my target. So the process is what allows you to do these things on a repeatable like fashion without your, your behavioral biases getting in the way.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I think people are so enamored by get-rich-quick schemes. And it's like, is if everybody's piling onto something then if they could just get in there and get in there they can take advantage of it all but it's usually that attitude of trying to get on board with something that's going nuts so that end up making you lose all your money because money doesn't magically appear from anywhere it's it's you know people putting money in and other people taking money taking that same money back out again so you know when you talk about you know pump and dumps or whatever the terminology is where you know everybody's like gotta buy this gotta go here we're going crazy and and everybody's like oh yeah i gotta get on this and then by the time they get on it it's too late and everybody else is selling out and and that just ends up being a really bad situation
1: the, the get rich quick scheme that is a perfect term right because get rich quick the opposite of that the the repercussion of trying to pursue a get rich quick scheme is often to get poor quick right because what it means is that you're taking a lot of risk, and sometimes that risk will pay off. I mean, it's called a get-rich-quick scheme because you see it happen every once in a while. But you'll hear, you'll hear those stories, right? You're going to hear the story about the person who put all their money in, I don't know, cryptocurrency or something, and then made a fortune on it. And you're not going to hear about the people who bought in later. Maybe they they're hurting bias and overconfidence got them into this thing way too late, and then they lost their money on it. And they're not gonna tell their friends and family about this because they're embarrassed, right? I think it's important to, to speak about this. I mean, I learned some of these lessons early on in my career. In fact, it's kind of the best way to learn is by making mistakes. And, and we all make mistakes as investors. Uh, but yeah, get rich quick. Don't try and follow any of those strategies. The ones that work is really get rich slow, you know? Those are the ones that work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah pack it away for the long long run i think in in cryptocurrency they talk it they, in cryptocurrency they call it hodl hodl hold on for dear life <laughs> yes the power of compound interest but yeah that that makes a lot of sense And things like compound interest and stuff, I mean, the the basics of compound interest is, you know, the money you make makes more money and then that money makes more money and then that money makes more money. But if you start, you know, start if you start investing when you're 60 years old, you don't have a long period of time for all that compound interest to do its magical work. So what, you know, back to you having a children's book and teaching children about saving and investing. I mean, holy moly, if they could get in when they're, you know, 20 or less. And start putting in, I don't know, ten percent of their paycheck or something like that each month. By the time they're in the retirement age, they're going to have a really, really good amount of money put away. And I know that's that's again, that's fairly standard knowledge. But again, what are you going to do, right? So to illustrate the point
1: of compound interest, you can use this rule called the rule of seventy-two, and essentially it's just a math trick to figure out your doubling time. So how? long does it take to double your money? And you take your rate of return and divide it by 72. So, or 72 over the rate of return. So as an example, if you're earning say 8% per year, then that means every nine years, you're gonna double your money, okay? So the concept of starting early becomes really important here, right? If you can start nine years earlier, well then you're gonna have twice as much money, absolutely. Right.
0: right. So
1: it matters a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Someone said to me once that it's not it's not the time you enter the market; it's the time you're in the market that makes all the difference.
1: Correct. <laughs> yeah. If you start early, great. But if you're sitting in cash, then compound interest isn't isn't helping. Yes. Time in the market is the variable that you need to look at.
0: With the economy and the fact that you know inflation is going crazy and stuff like that, how how important is it? If you're thinking long term, if you're thinking twenty years, how important is it that your the interest you're making is significantly as high as it can be, like much higher than um, the interest rates and stuff? Or does it does it fluctuate enough over time that it kind of evens itself out? Because because I've heard things like, well, if you're only making seven percent, then you're not really going to get anywhere because the inflation and taxes and everything are much higher or whatever. Um, and of course, as as I'm talking, I'm sounding like a, like I don't know what I'm talking about, which is totally fair. But maybe maybe I've triggered something that makes sense to, to what you're listening to and you could kind of answer.
1: <laughs> I mean, absolutely. The rate of return matters. The problem is that most people approach it the wrong way. They think that, oh, I need to get the highest rate of return possible. So I got to figure out what the next pot Stock is what's going to do well, and I'm going to try to like time the market, or I'm going to actively pick companies that are going to do well. The evidence does not support these behaviors working long term. So, as an example of this, there's two concepts, two kind of main philosophies for investing. There's active management, which is I'm going to go pick companies, right? Like I'm going to analyze TD Bank versus Royal Bank, and I'm going to decide which of those ones I want at home, right? or Suncor versus Imperial or whatever, right? Take your pick. Then you buy that company. And when you buy that company, somebody needs to sell you their shares, right? So if you're right, and it does outperform, then somebody else lost, right? Because they sold their shares and it was the wrong decision. So it ends up being a zero-sum game, right? For every person who outperforms the market, somebody else has to underperform the market, right? Okay? But the problem with this behavior is that it incurs a cost. Active management means I'm paying a portfolio manager and analyst or just taking a bunch of my time in order to do this analysis and pick stocks, which is not on average having any value, right? So I'm wasting time and money. And I'm also incurring taxes, right? Because every time I buy and sell an investment, I'm incurring capital gains or transaction costs, right? And so this hurts your ability to compound. And so the alternative to this approach, this active approach, is what's called passive investing. And this is actually what Warren Buffett puts in his will, right? He says, I want 90% of my money in the S&P 500, right? Not in Berkshire stock, right? He wants it in the S&P 500. And there's a reason why he suggests this. The data shows that over a 15-year period or longer, 90% of active managers underperform the benchmark. And it's because of that math that I explained, right? It's a zero-sum game and they're incurring a cost to do it. And so you just, you play that game enough times, you're gonna underperform. There's a few exceptions, but it's not even statistically different from chance. So you can't even say that the 10% who outperformed did it due to skill. It could have just as easily happened due to random chance. Now I do think there are a few people who have that skill. Warren Buffett might be one of those individuals, but trying to pick that person is just as unlikely as your ability to pick the next Amazon or Apple or something like that, right? And so what you want to do is, yes, you want to maximize return. But how do you do that? You actually do very basic things like buy and hold in a low-cost index. That will help you outperform the average investor who's spending way too much money on on trading costs and, and taxes and investment management fees and all that, right? So, so that's how you actually outperform. And it's, it seems kind of
0: counterintuitive. That's, that's really good advice. The other thing I heard, uh, which makes sense to me anyway, is when in doubt, zoom out. And I think it's referring to charts. So if you look at the charts of a stock or, or some sort of investment over a a long period of time, rather than just a short period of time, like you're looking at it over 10 years, instead of, you know, a two months it could look completely different like you know it can go it can go up and down but it's typically the general trend would be like up to the right which is what you want right you want up to the right so if you're if you're thinking something's really exciting and you're zoomed right in on it it could actually be a terrible time to get invested in something but when you zoom way out maybe it's actually a really good time to get invested in something i'm just fascinated by this whole investment thing and you know Everything, like as you had said, kind of near the beginning of this, everything is down, right? The whole economy is down. So it's kind of like everybody just needs to be calm and relax and just hang on and stick it out until, until things improve. Because if you sell, I guess one of the, one of the key things that I learned is if you, if you own something, whether it's a stock or a cryptocurrency or whatever, you don't actually lose money until you sell it. (laughs) So if you just sit on it. And it goes back up again, then you're okay. But if you sell it while well, it's low, or well, like if you sell it for less than you paid for it, then you you've actualized your loss of money. Do you have any comments on that? Maybe I'm totally lost.
1: I actually have kind of two opposing viewpoints of this one. So one, you're right that you need to take that long term approach, right? And now is probably not the time to be selling your stocks that have fallen quite substantially this year you generally want to hold but you don't want to just hold no matter what right sometimes the things that you own maybe you, you shouldn't own the thing that prevents you from selling is something called loss aversion it's a behavioral bias of saying like well i haven't taken a loss until i sell right and that's very common people think this way it's it's natural but the way i think it's better to think about it is would i buy that thing today like if i didn't own it would i buy it today if the answer is yes then hold it right? You already own it and you should own it. But if your answer is no, then you actually should be selling even though it might be at a loss, right? And I know that's a tough decision to make. But yeah, you shouldn't just hold anything because it's down. You should hold it because there's some long-term upside. So that's, that's where diversification is also a good thing. I, I don't question, oh, do I want to own the stock market? Because I'm not betting on the prospects of an individual company, which may or may not work out. I'm really betting on human progress right, and ingenuity and the ability of us to overcome challenges and innovate and be productive. right. Some companies will succeed in doing that. Some companies will fail. But if I own essentially all the companies in the index, the net result of progress is that the stock market goes up over time. So I'm comfortable holding onto my stocks that have fallen today because I'm broadly diversified and I know that the entire you know humanity will recover from this. If I hold individual stocks, however, that have fallen that much in value, I can't really say the same thing. It's possible a lot of these companies just simply don't make it, right? That's where diversification is really important, right? You just want to make sure you have enough different The concept is, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's a very apt analogy, right? We don't know what the future holds. And so having lots of different things is what protects you against that and allows you to hold through this turmoil.
0: This was really, really informative. And I think that there's there's probably people out there who are very well informed and do have been investing for a lot of years and stuff but i think for a lot of other people there's probably some really good tidbits in there that would be uh, i think there's probably going to be a lot of people thanking you in person for your great advice so you know thank you very much for joining me on the show do you have any uh, sort of closing thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners with
1: that's a lot of pressure one closing thought to, to end them all the way i would try to. The, the lesson I would like to put on to people is that to be successful as an investor, you need to become a probability-based investor. What this means is you can't rely on your emotions, right? You have these biases, we all do, that prevent us from making good, sound financial decisions. When there's blood on the streets and the stock market is falling, we all feel panic and fear, and that affects our decision-making. Now, when we're under stress, we lose 10 IQ points, I think is the study. So we can't necessarily distrust our our heads or our emotions in these times. So that's where becoming a probability-based investor is is the key to success. An example of this is like if you're going to go to a casino and you look at the person who's gambling at the casino versus the house, right? The house is the one who's going to win on average. The odds are tilted in their favor because they're focused on the probabilities, right? And they kind of make it so that it's in their favor. You play that game enough times and they end up winning. The gambler, on the other hand, the odds are against them, right? You play that enough time, you're guaranteed to lose your money. And so focusing on kind of the statistics, the numbers, what does the evidence suggest works? Do those things, right? Don't just trust your head. Don't listen to the talking heads, there's a lot of financial pundits on, on media that really don't know what they're talking about. You know, the, There's a saying in our industry that the, the way to become a pundit is to be able to speak confidently about matters in which you have no idea. That's, that's the hallmark of a pundit, right? There's a lot of people out there claiming to know the answers and telling you what to do. I'm not doing that. What I'm telling you is, look at the evidence. Look at what has worked historically? What does the data show works? And then follow that, right? And become a probability investor.
0: That's smart. Great advice. Thank you so much. Before we go, how would you, why would you like people to get a hold of you if they're interested in learning a little bit more about what you do and perhaps maybe work with you on some financial planning or something along those lines?
1: Sure. The best place to go is our website. So we have a bunch of information on there. If you're looking to learn about the company, obviously that's on there, but a lot of educational resources. You know, we talked about the children's book, there's an electronic version of that on there. I can get your paper copy if people reach out. There's contact information on the website as well. And there's also some adult educational stuff in there too. So I've written a wealth guide, we call it, that explains how to become this probability based investor and that's all free as well and you can get that on the website too so definitely go to the website the uh, it, the address for that is sholdicewealth.com and i don't know if there's show notes we can put it in there but yeah sholdice like the park in calgary sholdicewealth.com
0: thank you so much for being here kenton i really appreciate it looking forward to having you as a host and on some future episodes and looking forward to seeing you again at the rainforest If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was brought to you by New Idea Machine. We build great custom software while bridging the gap between education and experience. New Idea Machine makes your ideas real. Visit newideamachine.com for more info. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.